If you've got a Bible this morning, you want to open with me to Mark chapter 14. We're continuing through Mark's Gospel, getting close to the end of it here. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 51 is where we're, 52 is where we're going to be this morning, reading together. So if you've got it in front of you, go ahead and open it, and we'll read together as Mark writes these words, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against as a, a, a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's Word. Uh, several years ago, my brother and I were fishing on our reservoir that we grew up going to um, as children, nearly every single weekend, and we had been fishing all morning, and we'd caught some nice fish. It was April, uh, that time of the year uh, in which the red buds start to bloom and the fish start to really bite, um, and so we'd caught several 15, 16 fish that morning, good healthy fish, two to four pounds, and we were fishing this really large grass flat, which is like a slow tapering bank that comes out off of the shore uh, and is covered in all types of aquatic vegeta vegetation. And so I remember casting out a lure, a plastic worm, and began to work it back to the boat. And as I was working it back to the boat, I felt that thing that makes my heart rush, okay? It was that boom, boom, right? And so I go to set the hook, and when I set the hook, I could feel that fish begin to pull. Now, I never got that fish turned. And what that means is this, whenever you hook a fish, you want to try and turn it toward where it's coming towards you and the fish isn't running away from you any longer. And I never got that fish turned. And as I set the hook, I could feel him pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling until I couldn't feel him pulling anymore. And my heart sank. 
And I began to weep bitterly. And I began to slowly reel in the line. And as I reeled the line back up to the boat, and I brought the hook up out of the water, I noticed something about the hook as I began to examine it. See, the reason I never got that fish turned I never turned his head toward me and began to move him in the direction that I wanted him to come was because the fish had put so much pressure on that hook that it had taken the bend of the hook, which normally allows you to have leverage on the fish, and it had straightened it out. To this day, I believe that was the biggest fish I've ever hooked in my life. It's always the one that got away, right? And the one that you never saw. Right? But it straightened out the hook. See, the reason I never got my hands on the fish, I never kissed the fish. I I know, I'm weird, okay? The reason I never got a picture with the fish is because the hook that was designed to give me leverage and bring the fish in failed. It wasn't strong enough to hold up against the pressure that the fish had put on it. Now listen, when scientists and engineers talk about the strength of a material, they talk about four different aspects of strength. They talk about tensile strength which is a measure of how well that material retains uh, and resists being pulled to its breaking point. So like cookie dough, right? Silly putty has a very low tensile strength. But tungsten has a very high tensile strength. They talk about compressive strength, which is the measurement of how much it can be squeezed or pressed on before it is misshapen or crushed. They talk about yield strength, which refers to how well it withstands pressure and resists bending or warping under that pressure. And they talk about impact strength, the ability of a material to resist like impact. Make, right, that, that one makes real sense, right? Impact, when you crush it with a hammer, okay? whenever you beat on it. Those four, tensile, compressive, yield, and impact strength. But every material, every material that everything is composed of has a breaking point. A point in which there's too much pressure pulling on it, too much pressure pushing on it, too much pressure bending or warping it, or too much impact that crushes it. Every material, including you and I. Including you and I. See, we all have a breaking point. We all have that point at which we get knocked out, choked out, or we end up tapping out. Okay? For those of you who watch boxing or UFC. We all have that point at which we are overcome by pressure or we yield and give in to temptation. And Jesus knows this about human nature. He knows that we're finite. He knows that we're limited. That we have limited tensile strength, compressive strength, yield strength, and impact strength. So there's only so much pulling we can take. There's only so much pressing we can take. There's only so much crushing we can take. Only so much bending and beating we can take without breaking without yielding, without being crushed, and without being pulled apart. He knows we have limited capacity and ability to resist pressure and temptation. And that is why whenever he draws Peter, James, and John into the Garden of Gethsemane alongside of him, he gives them these two commands. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And if I were to title this sermon this morning, I would title it with those two words. Watch and pray. So what I want us to see this morning about this particular commands that Jesus gives is what they mean, what's at stake, and how we go about doing them from this text. Now, there's so much we could say from this text. And the reality of a sermon any given Sunday is that you've got to cut stuff out. You know what I'm saying? And so only so much can fit in. And you're like, you don't usually do that, but I'm going to try and do that this morning. All right? Watch and pray. What does it mean? What is at stake? And how do we 
do it. First of all, what does it mean to watch and pray? At the end of Mark chapter 13, following Jesus' discourse about the fall of Jerusalem and the end of this age, Jesus calls his disciples to stay awake. He says, stay awake. And here in Mark 14, this is precisely what Peter, James, and John are unable to do as they follow Jesus into the garden. Because he comes back on three occasions to find them asleep. And yet when Jesus returns from prayer, particularly the first time after He has poured His soul out, as recorded on the pages of Scripture, to the Father in intimacy as He calls Him Daddy. If there's any other way that we can redeem fallen humanity, let's go that direction. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Not what I want... Father, but what you have determined to take place. And when Jesus returns from that prayer, he finds the the apostles, particularly Peter, that's who he singles out in the text, he finds them asleep. And he calls them to what I would say is a continual, ongoing, pervasive watchfulness and state of prayerfulness. Watchfulness and prayerfulness. Now, The reason I say ongoing, continual, and pervasive is for this reason. In the Greek text, under those two commands of watching and praying, they are present active imperatives. You're like, whoa, that is profound. What in the world does that mean? Here's what it means. They are imperatives, which means they are commands. Things that ought to be done. Things that ought to be accomplished. Things that we ought to do. They're active, meaning they're to be done by us, not by someone else. Right? To us, and not by someone else for us. But they're to be done by us. And then they're present, which means in this context, they're continuous. They're an ongoing. They're a state of affairs that we should give ourselves to consistently. They're not to be sporadic or seasonal. Things that we do at some times, but not at others. No, they are present, continuous, active. Our responsibility, imperatives, commands, things that we are to carry out. And so what are they? Watching means that we are continually to be awake and aware of the threats around us and the threats within us because they are both destructive. The threats around us that would seek to put pressure on us externally, but also the threats within us that would seek to burn down our lives from our own desires that are misshapen and malformed, from our, our, our disordered loves that we have in our lives. We love things that we should love less more, and things that we should love more, we love less. Jesus says, be watchful, not only at the circumstances around you, but at the desires within you. And then He says, be prayerful. Means that we're to be dependent and discerning. In other words, recognizing that we can't do what we need to do in and of our own strength. That we must be dependent. That's why we fight on our knees. That's why we confess, Lord, we need you. And to be discerning. In other words, I, I don't know how to sort through and sift through all the motivations of my heart on my own. I don't know how to sort and sift through all the information that's coming externally on my own. God, I need you for that. So I'm on my knees, watchful, aware of the dangers around you and the dangers within you, and prayerful, dependent upon God for the discernment that you need to sift and sort through all the motivations of the heart and all the information coming from other sources. Watch and pray, Jesus says. And notice the purpose for which he says this. He says, in order that 
you might not enter into temptation. Now, some of your translations may say it this way, that you might not fall into temptation. The idea is the same. Right? It's the same. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, watch and pray so you don't experience temptation. That's not, that's not in the Bible. Right? Because no matter how long you've walked with God, no matter how close of fellowship you've maintained with God, no matter the degree of intimacy that you share with God, you will always experience temptation. But Jesus says, I'm not as concerned about your experience of temptation. I'm concerned about you entering into temptation. In other words, you're going to walk by the doors. You just don't open them and go into them. Okay? There are going to be circumstances that arise in your life that are going to, that they're going to, they're going to tempt you. He says, but don't fall into it. Don't enter into it. So you must be watchful and prayerful. And I believe one of the reasons he calls on us to do this is because each of us, listen, this is true for his disciples then. It was true in the ancient, back in biblical times. It was true in medieval times and it's true in modern times. Listen, you and I have a tendency to overestimate what we're capable of and underestimate what's required of us. That is human nature. And I discovered this a number of years ago when I went snow skiing for the first time. Right? I remember going to get a lesson on the bunny slopes. Okay? It was me and like these three-year-old kids. All right? And so I'm going down the bunny slopes. And I'm like, I got this. Okay? So I'll get up on a green, which is kind of like that, that first layer of nice rolling hills. And I'm just kind of... I'm like, man, I could be in the Olympics next year, okay? And so then I go up to a blue, which is the next level up, and then a blue-black, and I'm just sl- slicing and dashing back and forth on the slopes. And then I'm riding the lift up, and I see underneath me the moguls. Now, the moguls are these little, like, mounds of snow that are, like, kind of cut back and forth. They're very technical skiing, right? Where you've got to have the angles of your skis pointing in the right direction each time you hit those hills, and you're just kind of cutting back and forth really quickly through those hills. And I see these eight- and nine-year-old kids just, pew, 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 pew. and I thought, I could, if they're doing that, surely a 25-year-old young man in the best shape of his life Minute, by the way, that's well in my rearview mirror now. Uh, but in the best shape of his life, I, surely I can do that. And so I get down off the lift, and I make my way over to the moguls, and I stand at the top of the mogul hill, and I go, okay, here we go. So I put it down, I set my skis, and I hit that first hill. My skis go out from under me, and I'm on my back, poof, right in the snow. I'm like, all right. Like, I'm a competitor by nature, and so I'm not giving up yet. So I get up again, right, set them on the next hill, boom, on my back again, boom, 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 back, butt, face, all in the snow, all the way down the hill, until I hit a certain point where the next time I fell, I look beside of me, and there's a pool of blood. It wasn't my blood. Someone else had had a bad day right there. And that was when I realized I had overestimated my ability and underestimated what was required of me. And listen, church, that is not only true of me in my 20s on the ski slopes, that is true of every man, woman, and child when it comes to what God has called us to. We overestimate what we are capable of and underestimate what is required of us as disciples of Jesus when we think that we can carry it out in our own strength, under our own power based upon our natural wiring temperament and makeup jesus says you must watch and pray or else you will enter into temptation right 
And here's why. Watchfulness, one of the ways that we watch is through prayer because prayer opens our eyes to see rightly the things around us and within us. And prayer sets our minds on the things of God and shapes our hearts around the things of God. Okay, it puts our minds on God, the things of God and shapes our hearts around the things of God so that, listen, you can't pray and lust at the same time. You can't be petitioning God for assistance and be lusting in your heart after something or someone at the same time. You can't pray for your enemies and simultaneously hate them. You can't pray for their conversion and want to see them destroyed. You can't pray for a brother or sister who wounds you without and at the same time, harbor bitterness and hatred in your heart towards them. Those two things do not coexist. So Jesus says, listen, if you want to not enter into temptation, watch and pray. Don't overestimate what you can do and underestimate what's required of you. But in dependence and discernment, get on your knees before God and cry out for His assistance. Because that's what you need. watchfulness and prayer are crucial in facing temptation, Jesus says. But what specific temptation does Jesus have in mind here? You see, what's at stake here? There's two things that are at stake, I believe. There's many more, but two of them in this text I want to show you, and they are life and freedom. See, what Jesus calls His disciples to, He had already been doing when He comes back, because He had already gone before the Father, petitioning Him, in anguish, crying out to Him, enjoying, like you'd seen Jesus in all these moments in His public ministry throughout Mark's Gospel. In moments of distress, He draws away and spends time in prayer with the Father. And there was no greater time of distress or trouble. In fact, the language of the text says that He was deeply troubled, greatly distressed. He was perplexed being torn apart. In this moment. And you say, well listen, man, there's so many other people throughout human history who have faced death, right? Martyrs who have faced death with steely resolve. What's going on with Jesus? Why is He so deeply distressed? And the answer is this, because what Jesus was facing was more than death. It was more than death. And we know that from the cup. See, when Jesus petitions the Father to remove this cup from Him, you know what He's asking for? See, the cup in the Old Testament was synonymous with the language of judgment. That when somebody drank the cup or the cup was poured out over them, it was synonymous with God's judgment coming upon them. And so you ask the question, well, who's, who's, why is Jesus drinking the cup? Why is Jesus receiving judgment for me? And for you? And for His disciples? For the sins of the world. See, what Jesus was facing and staring down on the garden, every other time in Mark's Gospel, when He draws away with the Father and He petitions the Father, He has fellowship with the Father, heaven was opened. But this time, this time when He draws away and He goes before the Father, it wasn't heaven that was open, but hell. Because He knew judgment was falling upon Him. And there was a cup that He had to drink. See, what Jesus calls His disciples to do is what He Himself had been doing, watching and praying. And this is what's at stake. First of all, life in the kingdom of God. Life in the kingdom of God. See, when Peter warns, Jesus warns Peter of entering into temptation in verse 37, 
the particular temptation that Jesus is warning Peter about is this, the temptation to operate according to the highest values in the kingdoms of this world, which is to use power to coerce and control people. Which is something the church has struggled with in ancient days, in medieval days, and in modern days. To use power and authority to exercise them in a way to coerce and control people. Listen, in John's Gospel, let me show this to you. In John's Gospel, we're told that whenever the armed detachment shows up to arrest Jesus, that this unnamed person here in Mark's Gospel who takes out the sword and whacks off a guy's ear, his name is Peter. Right? Impetuously takes out the sword and whacks off the servant's ear, lops it off. And in that moment, I want you to understand something that what Peter is doing when he draws the sword and he takes the ear, what he's doing is he enters into the very temptation that Jesus has warned him against. Jesus says, watch and pray, not so you don't experience temptation, but so that you don't enter into temptation. And when Peter cuts off the servant's ear, he not only experiences it, but he enters into the temptation to embrace the kingdoms of this world and their values. See, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus contrasts His kingdom or His rule and His reign, the way He uses and exercises authority and power with the kingdoms of this world. In fact, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 18, when Jesus is engaged in conversation with Pilate, Jesus says this in verse 36. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, Jesus draws a bold, contrasting line between the values of His kingdom and the values of the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says, my kingdom's not like yours. My rule's not like yours. The way I use power and authority is not like you. If it was, Jesus says, then when that armed attachment came, my servants would have all drawn swords and fought to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. Which is what Peter tried to do, and Jesus, in Mark's and John's Gospel, would say to him, put it away. Put it away. It's not how my kingdom comes. The way, of, the way of life in the kingdom of this world is to use authority, power, and force to coerce and control people. Now, listen, perhaps the most succinct place that Jesus contrasts the way His kingdom operates and its values and the way the kingdoms of the world operate in their values are in Luke chapter 6, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew's version, you've got this long Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Luke's is more succinct, but I think it is most clear about the differences between these two kingdoms. Listen to what Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26 say. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who 
are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. One commentator, Michael Wilcox, said this. He said, in the life of God's people, there will always be a remarkable reversal of values. Christians will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. In other words, the things at the bottom of the list when it comes to the values of the kingdoms of this world are at the top of the list when it comes to the values in the kingdom of God. And the things at the top of the list in the values of the kingdom of God are at the bottom or not even on the list when it comes to the values in the kingdom of God. And notice what Jesus says are at the top. In the kingdom of this world, power, money, success, and recognition. Those of you who are rich, you are full, you laugh, and people speak well of you. Power, money, success, recognition. Notice what's at the top of the values in the kingdom of God. Weakness, poverty, suffering, rejection. <laughs> Pow- Let me read that to you. Power, money, success, recognition, weakness, poverty, suffering, rejection. There is a reversal of values between these two kingdoms. The kingdom of God is completely upside down when it comes to the kingdoms of this world. Right? The values of the kingdom of God are completely unnatural to us while the values of the kingdom of this world are natural and normal. While the kingdom of God is unnatural and seems impossible. For us to actually carry out, right? Biologically, right? You don't ever hear about the survival of the weakest, poorest, most despised, and wounded. Right? Psychologically, whenever people talk like what we prize is weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection, people say, you need a therapist. That may be true, but not for this reason. Jesus says, these are the highest values in the kingdom of God. Blessed are you. When you embrace these things, woe to you when you embrace those. When you order your life around those. And listen, church, I want to tell you, if you fail, if I fail to watch and pray, we will like Peter. We will like Peter. When we feel like we're losing grips on control of our lives, what will we do? We'll take the sword and we'll cut off someone's ear. We'll revert to operating according to the values of the kingdom of this world. And Jesus will say, put it away. Put it away. It's not how my kingdom operates. I wonder, I wonder if the church, capital C church, big C church in America has lost its way in the kingdom of God because we have come to prize power and riches and wealth and recognition and control rather than weakness and poverty and suffering and rejection. Which has led some to say, let's take up the sword and go get it back.
That is not in line with the kingdom of God. Second thing that's at stake here is the freedom that we enjoy from self-forgetfulness. Listen, Jesus does not invite Peter, James, and John to proceed with him into the garden because he needed them, but because they needed him. He didn't need them to come along. He needed to bring them along. See, Jesus brings Peter because Peter has very publicly and repeatedly avowed his allegiance to Jesus even to the point of death. Okay? Jesus brings James and John along because they have asserted their ability to drink the cup Jesus would drink and be baptized with their baptism Jesus would experience. In other words, it is those who are most full of themselves, those who are most self-reliant, those who are most self-confident, those who trust most deeply in their own strength, who are most in need of watchfulness and prayerfulness. (laughs) Those who are tempted to self-reliance most need to watch and pray. In addition, look, when, look at what Jesus doesn't say when he returns to check on the disciples. Right? He's in, remember, he's in the hour of his greatest distress, his greatest trouble. He's being abandoned left and right. In fact, in verse 50, we're told that whenever he is arrested and led away, everyone flees. Everyone. There's not a single person left. In fact, there is one unnamed young man who was wearing a linen garment who whenever he is seized to be brought along with Jesus he's like man peace out I'm gone leaves his garment and everything runs away naked (laughs) right you're like what is going on there and most commentators believe that's a picture of every disciple in that hour that's why he's unnamed he's abandoned by all and in his hour of need, when Jesus returns to check on them and he finds them asleep, listen, he doesn't say, come on, guys. Can't, just this one time. Can't you get anything right? I mean, I'm over here sweating drops of blood, about to drink the cup of God's wrath against your sin. Can't you get it together? Right? Can't you stay awake? Like, Get some toothpicks, pry your eyelids open, and pray with me. Come on. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. Rather, what Jesus says is found in verses 37 and 38. He says, and he came back and found them sleeping and says, Peter, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Look, in Jesus' hour of greatest need. His concern is not the lack of emotional support he is receiving from Peter, James, and John, but his concern is their spiritual health and well-being. Jesus said, I didn't bring you along here for me. I brought you here along for you. I don't want to see you fall, Peter. I don't want to see you fail, Peter. I don't want to see you stumble, Peter. I want to see you flourish. His greatest concern is not for himself, but for them. He didn't say, watch and pray so that you can support me. But he says, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. See, so often when you and I are under, sometimes even the most minor of stress, 
but certainly under major stress, we turn inward, we, be, we implode, we become absorbed with our own situations, with our own needs, with our own desires, with our own concerns. Well, maybe you don't do that, but that's what I do. Okay? Whenever things are pressing in really hard, or I'm being pulled, it seems like being pulled apart, what I tend to do is my focus turns inward and I become self-absorbed. And what I've discovered over the years is that self-absorption, it is a prison. It is a prison. Right? Because whenever you become self-absorbed, you become bound in chains of insecurity. You become bound in chains of anxiety and worry. When you become self-absorbed, you become bound in chains of selfishness. Right? You become bound but in this moment, in Jesus' greatest hour of stress, He is not self-absorbed, but self-forgetful. Self-forgetful. Because that He's free. Listen, this is, this is how one person can be free legally. There's millions of people walking around the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex right now who are free, okay, to go where they want, do what they want, with whomever they want, be, work wherever they can get hired, buy whatever they can afford to buy. They're free to do all these things, but they are bound in chains in prison because their eyes are turned inward, they're absolutely self-absorbed, and they're in prison of insecurity and worry and anxiety. But this is why there's story after story after story of men and women throughout the history of the church who have been imprisoned for their faith and lived a life of freedom behind bars. Because their eyes were not fixed upon themselves. They were not self-absorbed. Rather, they enjoyed the freedom of self-forgetfulness. See, when Jesus comes back, he, 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 this, this particular self-forgetfulness in Jesus' life, listen, it doesn't arise from a place of comparison either. Right? That's typically where our self-forgetfulness arises from. Case in point, whenever you take a teenage child down into the inner city to go serve at government housing projects and they're down there and they see um, poverty you know, 30 miles from their home. And they serve, they provide meals and care and they you know, do some yard work and cleaning and they do all these things and they come back and they come back. Or you send an adult away on their first overseas mission trip and they go into a third world country and they see abject poverty. They see shanties. They see tin, tin structures and cardboard for tables. They see all these kinds of things and dirt floors and they come back, both of those, those teens and those adults, they come back and they say, listen, I never realized how fortunate and how blessed I am and how much we have here. And I'm so thankful to God for all of these blessings that He's given. Is that a right impulse? Yes, it is right to give thanks to God for your home and for a family and for the care and provision that God has given. That is a right impulse. But listen, that's typically where it stops for Western modern people. They become self-forgetful through comparison. Right? Because they see people who have less than them, they know they have more than others, and so they're thankful to God for all of these blessings. It's a good thing to give thanks to God. But listen, Jesus, Jesus' self-forgetfulness here, it does not rise from a place of comparison, but it rises from a place of compassion. Of compassion. Because listen, Jesus doesn't go back to the disciples and say, 
Listen, man, I know you guys have it much worse than I do. <laughs> Listen, you're much worse off than I am. Right? If Jesus had gone back to the disciples and said that, he would have been lying through his teeth. Why? Because of the cup. None of the disciples had to drink that cup. Only he had to drink that cup. He doesn't go back and compare his experience to their, their experience and then forget about himself and say, well, they're so much worse off than I am. No, Jesus, out of a place of compassion, moved to be concerned about their greatest need in the hour of his greatest agony. That he forgets about himself and is concerned about them. It rises from a place of compassion. And so you go, well, those things on the surface, they look to be similar. How do you distinguish them and tell them apart? Let me tell you how you tell them apart. Listen, comparison brings you home to give thanks for all the things that you have. While compassion brings you home willing to give up some of those things. Comparison brings you home thanking God for all these blessings. But compassion brings you home willing to say, yes, God, thank you for these things. I don't need them anymore. I want to leverage them for the sake of others. Now listen, until you and I reach that point, we will continually wrestle with the chains of self-absorption. And be bound in prison and never know the freedom of self-forgetfulness. So you say, how do you grow in that? Listen, you grow in that true compassion two ways. By beholding the compassion of Jesus. That He, who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself, taking on the very form of a servant, gave everything away. And why do you do that? For you and for me. Behold the compassion of Jesus willing to drink the cup and face that hour for you and I to fulfill the scriptures as he says in the text. So that you and I might know fellowship with God. Might know the joy of adoption as sons and daughters. So you behold His compassion, but then you also exercise that muscle of compassion every time you feel an impulse to do so. Right? One of the things I've learned over the years, too, is that I don't go out and go from, you know, you see those couch to 5K plans? All right? right? The couch to marathon plan doesn't happen in one week. Hmm? It may not even happen in one year for some folks. Because, but every time you get an impulse to exercise those muscles and you do so, what happens? They grow stronger. You get an impulse to exercise the next day, what happens? You tear them down, they build back up, and they grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And the more you exercise that muscle of compassion in your life and self-forgetfulness of moving towards others despite your distress, in the midst of your own agony, Right? In the midst of your diagnosis, in the midst of your financial worries and troubles, in the midst of all of these things, as you move towards others in generosity, as you move towards others in service, rather than sitting back and going, I can't believe nobody's serving me in self-absorption. You know what happens? That muscle just withers. It atrophies. 
It gets weaker and weaker and weaker. But the more that you exercise it, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And the less you're thinking about yourself and the more you're focused on the needs of those who are around you. Let me ask you a question. If, if, <laughs> if we watched and prayed and we m- grew because of that in our self-forgetfulness and our reflection of the values of the kingdom of God, how many of our marital issues would disappear? Well, you got real quiet. Quieter than usual. If we watched and prayed, if we watched and prayed, discerning, dependent, relied on God for the strength that we need, and we grew in the reflection of kingdom values, and we became more and more self-forgetful, how many of our parenting challenges we would be strengthened to engage with new vigor and resolve. And students, how many of you would be more responsive and honoring to the authority that God's placed in your life? If we watched and prayed, dependent, reliant, discerning, and grew in kingdom values and a degree of self-forgetfulness, How much of the landscape of our nation would we be able to look at and let go of? Without being driven into places of despair. Regardless of which side of the aisle you might find yourself on politically. If we watched and prayed, how much of our financial worries would slowly slowly dissolve like a tumor that's being radiated with chemotherapy as you watch and pray and watch and pray and watch and pray. This is not all pie in the sky like theology coming out of the Bible. It is. But listen, it meets us. It meets us in the most practical and personal areas of our lives. How many of our insecurities about our appearance would melt away because we're no longer staring at the mirror wondering about how we look and how we're going to look to others, but we're looking at the needs in their lives and how we can meet them and move towards them because self-forgetfulness has taken hold and we're no longer concerned about our reputations, but willing to receive rejection on account of the kingdom values that we've embraced. I don't know if that makes a difference for anybody else in the room, but it does for me. Watch and pray. This is what's at stake. Freedom and life as God has designed it to be lived. So how do we do it? How do we do it? I want to close with this. How do we do this? We learn to plead with God to bend our will to His. Notice what Jesus does there in the garden. As He faces the impending cup, He says what? If there's any other way, let this cup, let this experience of your judgment for the sin of the world falling on me, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, 
let your will be done. See, what Jesus is doing in the garden is praying a prayer of submission. A prayer of submission. God, would you bend my will to yours, Father? It's the same thing that he teaches us to pray whenever he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, when he teaches about prayer, when he says, your kingdom come, what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, what things are like in heaven where you are worshipped 24-7, where your majesty and glory are radiating and giving light to all things, let that be done here on earth as more and more of my life is bent to your will. Right? As there is, there is yield strength that you're exerting on my life and you're bending it to look like you. Right? This kind of prayer, listen, <laughs> because we're Western Americans, okay, most of our prayers, okay, they, they sound rather Disney-esque. Okay? I remember growing up in the 1980s, and I remember watching on Sunday nights the Disney family movie, okay? Um, and I remember every time that movie came on, there was a theme song that came before it. You remember that theme song? That when you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. What's going to happen? Your dreams, they're going to come true. All you got to do is wish. All you got to do is look up at that star. All you got to do is think it into being. And it's going to come. That's what a lot of our prayers sound like. Many of our prayers as Western, modern Americans in the 21st century sound like us trying to pray things into existence. And I'm not saying it is wrong to pray for big, bold things. Couldn't come up with another word there. Things. That is right. But listen, there are times in which God does not respond in the way that you want Him to. And so in those moments, you have to pray yourself into endurance. Not just praying things into existence, but praying yourself into endurance as you submit to what God has given and what God has withheld. One author, a Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Watson in the 17th century, he said it this way when he spoke of pleading with God, to, to, that we would receive diligent, that, 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 that when he spoke of prayer, this kind of pleading, he spoke of diligently doing all that God commands and patiently submitting to all that God inflicts. That our wills would be bent to His in everything that He commands us to do and then everything that He sends our way, everything that He allows in our lives, that we would submit to it, we would yield to it, we would receive it as a good gift from a good Father because we know what He's trying to do is not destroy us, but deliver us, and mostly deliver us, not only from Satan, sin, and death, yes, but also from ourselves. Listen, in, in 1994, there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly about the temperaments that they discovered in children that went against the grain of just modern parenting philosophy. See, in modern parenting philosophy, what we're told is that you should not try to press your children in any ways that make them uncomfortable, that pushes them outside of their, what, they, what, they, what, they, what they are comfortable with, right? based upon how they are wired or what their temperament is. And they found in this cross-cultural study across 36 cultures 
that there is such a thing as temperaments. Like there's a wiring in our brains. You've got these different types of people. You have anxious types. You have aggressive types. You have laid back types. And these temperaments or these wirings in different individuals affect how they respond and handle situations they face in life. So when they run into trouble, right, anxious types, what do they do? They run, right? When they run into trouble, aggressive types, what do they do? They fight, right? They stand up. When they run into trouble, laid back types, what do they do? They just gonna shrug their shoulders and go, oh, well, right? <laughs> que sera, sera, right? Whatever will be, will be, right? The, this is the natural wiring. But the article said the problem with our natural temperaments is that they are only wise responses in certain situations, they're not always the wise response. They are sometimes, but not always. Right? And the article goes on to say that modern experts were wrong whenever they said you shouldn't impose anything on them, but must let them discover who they are, right? They have to have their own gifts and wiring and they have to discover it for themselves without you trying to, trying to steer them, direct them, press them in any way. Tell them to go against the grain of that wiring. And, and, and in the article, he said the leading child psychiatrist that wrote the article said that it's the wrong thing for a parent to do is to let their kid always do what comes naturally. Because the only way they're ever going to be really wise in life is if you can help them learn to get outside of their natural temperament when the situation demands it so they can respond wisely. So you have to intervene and press them in certain areas of their life in order to see them grow. Right? But this is hard for parents. You know why it's hard for parents? Because it's hard. <laughs> right? It doesn't seem natural to you to, and you don't know, like your kid, I don't know why you're telling me to do this. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel normal. It doesn't feel natural. But we're telling them that you need to do that. And the reason that we have such a hard time with that is because they get angry and they cry, and they melt down, and they stomp their feet, and they walk off, and they raise their voice, and they say hurtful things to us as their mother and father. And whenever they are hurting, we are hurting. But what this article concluded was that the most selfish possible thing is to say that I love my child too much to push them against what comes natural, to make them angry or tearful. And you know what? God does the same thing with us. Because what always comes natural to us, listen, is not the values of the kingdom of God. But what always comes natural to us are the values of the kingdoms of this world. Power, money, recognition, control. What comes unnatural to us are weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection. Which is why we have to learn how to plead with God to bend our will to His. Not my will, but yours. And you can do that personally. And we do that corporately. Whether it be through life groups here in our services, but also, I'll tell you one real practical thing and then I'm done. Sunday mornings at 8.30, we have morning prayer in room 5, right here on the other side of these walls. Our deacon of prayer, Ms. Tammy Almason, is there every Sunday morning at 8.30 to lead that time. And what a sweet time that would be for a church to gather and to pray, God, not our will, but yours. We have evening prayer, 4.30 at her home. 
4, 4 o'clock at her home where you can come together again and pray corporately in community for the needs in your life and the needs in the life of our church and the needs in our community and our world. What a beautiful thing it would be to see a church body praying together, pleading with God, bend our will to yours. Help us to submit. Help us to forget about ourselves, grow in kingdom values. But the only way to do that, church, is to watch and pray. Let's do that right now. Father, we thank you today. You have not left us on our own. You have not abandoned us, despite the fact that we abandoned you. That we, like the young man at the end of the text that we read this morning, have run away and fled, like all the disciples. But in your faithfulness, your Son did not abandon us. But that He drank the cup freely. That He gave Himself over to that hour in utter self-forgetfulness. Concerned about the needs of those that He loved. Father, as we celebrate that week after week here at Redeemer as the Gospel is preached, week after week as we remember the cup that Jesus drank on our behalf, week after week, as we remember the cross that He bore, the blood that He shed, His body that was torn, week after week as we remember the fact that He rose again from the grave, that He is now seated at Your right hand, week after week as we remember that He is one day (coughs) coming again in a return to judge the living and the dead and to receive all those who have trusted in Him and treasured Him above all things and to bring judgment for all who have not. As we do that week after week, Father, May you heighten our awareness of the dangers around us and the dangers within us. So that we would not be asleep at His coming, that we would be awake, we'd be discerning, we'd be watchful, we'd be aware. And that we'd be on our knees dependent. Pleading with you to bend our will towards yours to make what you have willed what we want and in those places that it is not may we keep bending that our values would reflect yours and that we'd be willing and able to forget about ourselves even in the midst of our distress to fix our eyes on Jesus who forgot about Himself in the midst of the greatest distress any of us could possibly imagine raised exponentially out of care and concern and love. We pray this in Jesus' name.